Well, I kind of would think about that as like the will center, the, the heart center, the mind center, which is the will of saying, I'm actually committed to being effective and I'm committed to learning how to be effective, which means I'm committed to studying every failure I have and saying exactly strategically why and studying the, like the, now the study is here. The will is the commitments to not become ineffective or disempowered. And the heart center is the, what is actually sacred to me that I'm in service to. And I think the key thing here is recognizing life is sacred. Whatever part of life I'm focused on is connected to the rest of life. And if I'm not holding the whole thing, I'm probably driving an arms race where the thing that I'm okay causing harm to will end up harming the thing that I care about. Yeah. And so how we get clear strategy devotion and will aligned like to me that's a minimum requisite for people to be effective collective insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you welcome to collective insights daniel schmachtenberger independent scholar and founder of the consilience project welcome to homegrown humans where we get to kick around end of times for stellar minds. Glad to have you, man. Good to be here with you, Jamie. This is fun. Yeah, and, and as one of the, the people that I look to most often for a sort of pulse check on what's happening in the big wide world and what's the intersection of, you know, my, what might be called a sort of metasystemic crisis where there's a lot of different things to keep keep our eyes on. There's a lot of different um, unravelings uh, braiding together. I'd love to just start with what is your sense? I mean, you've been tracking uh, e the ecology, the geopolitics, the macroeconomics, uh, the information ecology. Uh, you've been tracking a number of these things for a number of years. And I'd love to just start with what have you seen in 2020? as we've been sort of experiencing a, a general quickening, um, what are some of the things that are particularly catching your attention right now? Yeah, I think that a lot of the people kind of looking at system dynamics as a whole um, and looking at also kind of specifically catastrophic risk possibilities have been saying for some time that there's increasing system fragility. I mean, you can go back to like Club of Rome and limits of growth outlying, hey, there's going to be system fragility for environmental reasons. Um, and since then, there have been more and more of those exponential tech mediated and whatever. And, and that, was that, that was the think tank convened as the Club of Rome in the early 70s? Is that right? Yeah. And they coming out of that is the book Limits of Growth that addressed it was the first computer model, the World 3 computer model, that uh, looked at pollution dynamics and unrenewable resource use dynamics, and as a result of that, violent conflicts and uh, human migration and whatever, and tried to model out uh, ways into the future. And they came to civilization will collapse roughly around 2054, um, as we know it. Um, and they weren't, of course, modeling adding Facebook or Google or um, exponential tech or anything. It was just pretty much looking at the materials economy, right? And the results of the nature of exponential growth of capital requiring exponentiation of a linear materials economy that runs out on a finite planet and then what happens. So that's kind of like a, 
a first place um, <clears throat> to start looking at system fragility. What I would say happened in 2020, starting with COVID, is that we went from people saying that catastrophic risk was likely or imminent um, and that the current systems were fragile to that that fragility actually started to cascade in terms of system failures. And specifically, like if I just kind of outline why systemic fragility. Uh, before World War II, we didn't have a global system. We had a bunch of local systems. Individual countries could make a lot of their own stuff, depend on their own mm -hmm. stuff. So if an area failed, it didn't mean everywhere failed. Post-World War II, major empires could never fight with each other as a, because the weapons were too big. So they needed to become so economically interdependent that it was always more profitable to just figure it out via trade rather than bomb each other. And so the positive side of that was we didn't have kinetic World War III since then. The negative side was we got a world system that was so interconnected that a failure anywhere could cascade to failures everywhere. And we've never known how to build civilizations that don't eventually fail. Well, and, and just tease, tease apart there for me the correlation and causation, because you said once we had super big empires, in this case, likely the, the U.S. and the USSR, who were too big to fight, then, and, and you throw in China in the mix, then we needed to figure out this highly, what well, we needed to build this hyper-connected global trade system. It, what, is that accurate? Is, was it an outcome of mutually assured destruction, and since we can't bomb each other back into the Stone Age, we better sell each other more stuff? Or, or was there a co-arising for a bunch of different drivers? Of course, there are a bunch of different drivers. We couldn't have done globalization before we had the technology to be able to do transit fast enough, right, and transport fast enough, and where we needed to start building things that required materials that had been mined from all around the world on faster production cycles and bigger populations. So um, there was a trend already to the empires getting larger and larger with more kind of uh, integrated capacity. But no, I think there was absolutely in the post-World War II Bretton Woods world, a recognition that the major superpowers couldn't have kinetic warfare again. And there had not been a time, if you look at the history of Europe or whatever, that the major empires didn't have kinetic warfare for, all, for any meaningful periods of time. And so we could do proxy wars. <laughs> and other than that, we had to kind of sublimate that into economic interdependence. And of course, the capacity for that was already emerging. But I do and, think, and, and, and just to define some terms, because you're introducing some nice ones here. But so, kinetic war meaning actually, you know, bullets and bombs, yep. and and proxy wars, things like Korea, Vietnam. Yeah, USA and USSR can test our weapons against each other in smaller countries, but we can't actually do it directly. Um, so, but w what we see in this situation is that a virus can start in a place that feels totally remote to us, right? It can start in China and then pretty soon because of the nature of how, how interconnected via transport the world is, it's a global virus everywhere. And then as a result of that, to start trying to deal with it via shutdowns, you get breakdowns of supply chains, which start to break down food supply chains and uh, you see small businesses closing at scale, which exacerbates wealth inequality. And so like a, a, a system, set of cascades of decoupling the economy and the market, of increasing wealth inequality, of changing the way that different countries handled it, creating geopolitical tensions um, in the EU and Eastern Europe and between the US and other places. Uh, so 
then of course when we see like the the racial tensions that started here there have been racial tensions for a long time they became more violent but of course they're going to become more violent after massive unemployment because when people's needs aren't being met by the system like fundamental survival needs then uh violence is much more likely and uh well, well let, let's talk about that for a sec because i mean I, I heard some interesting pieces that described the the riots that the the Black Lives Matters riots and George Floyd protests as couldn't have been possible other than within the context of quarantine and lockdown and that it was it was a pressure valve release and and that though, yes of course those things had been there for a long time um, and were endemic in many ways but the combination of that so so let's we, we've been doing a very much sort of a socio-political analysis for a sec, but let's kind of do the exact opposite. And, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on the role of basically collective grief in this and its relationship to rage and social protest. Well, what do you, what do you th A, think about that as, as a category to be monitoring, you know, as a, as a vector of risk? And also, do you have any thoughts on how we can work with those energies better than we seem to be? That's a great question. Um, I I do have some thoughts on it. I'm actually curious to hear your frame and thoughts on it because uh, there's some. I'm I'm sure you have them and went there. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I don't even remember what I think. I might have even been watching The Crown or something. And somebody, oh, I know what it was. King George died, right? And then in the midst of that, the family was lashing out at each other. And there was a sense of who's to blame. And none of it made a whole lot of sense in the sense of, you know, was it you who took the car that day? Or was it, was it you, the one he loved the most? Or, you know, whatever. It, it doesn't really matter when a human nervous system and psyche is overloaded with grief. You know, it, it is non-rational or irrational, but it must be vented unless, you know, if the person feels that it will collapse or destroy them, if it's not. And it feels like with the amount of lashing out and thrashing that we're experiencing, even towards those that could be allies or that could be on the same side and be in common cause, it feels like we're sort of all suffering micro to even now macro PTSD. The sort of yeah. re a hand reaching out to help is actually seen as one that's going to strike. And, and then that justifies my counterattack. And it just feels curious to me as to how we're going to work our way through that uh, to, to find common ground again. Yeah. So, I mean, if we context set, when you say PTSD, it's like it's not the acute onset PTSD. It's the complex PTSD of um, a bunch of micro traumas from a whole set of amorphous things that lead to a PTSD-like reaction from lots of things, right? <clears throat> And so the idea that the the social reality, the civilizational reality right now is kind of generating complex PTSD pretty ubiquitously in lots of people is a very interesting frame. Hmm. And the idea that there's pretty dysregulated nervous systems and people who also didn't really learn where there wasn't a culture where people learned how to regulate their or relate with their emotions in ways that were healthy and empowered them and connected their logical strategic capacity with their will with their kind of emotional self um 
I think there is very increased load and not a good culture that teaches people how to deal with that load. And when we talk about the increased load, we can talk about like, you know, most of news is vicarious trauma. <laughs> and <clears throat> if I'm a black guy in Oakland and my newsfeed has curated the thing that is maximizing time on site and it's maximizing time on site by you know, the things that kind of scare me and piss me off and whatever are I'm going to share and engage with more than not, I might just see a huge amount of cops killing black people. And then if I'm a white Trump supporter in, in Texas, I might just have a news feed of black people unprovokedly attacking white people and the most violent parts of the riots. And both of the people are actually experiencing vicarious trauma that is statistically decoupled, right? They can't actually emotionally process the statistics of what percentage of police violence is actually a result of what. And, um, and so then they go into trauma response. And so then they aren't necessarily doing strategy of what is it I care about? What is the end game? How is the thing I'm gonna do gonna create counter response from the other side? And am I doing something that will actually advance what I care about? Or am I largely just responding reacting to a set of traumas in a way that might be part of a kind of death spiral. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, so on that, I mean, if we just kind of stay in the culture side of things for a moment, um, that is something that I've noticed the most in the sort of identity politic branch of the culture wars, which is the collapsing of, um, I suppose perspective in the sense that if you know if you if you rewind the clock for like the last I don't know what 30 40 50 years even with the advent of conscious communication Ricardo Flores some of the work out of that nonviolent communication you know that whole neck of the woods of being more precise with our language owning and separating the difference between thoughts feelings impressions Chris Audris at Harvard Business School and his ladder of inference you know there's been a lot of work decoupling the stories we tell, like how I feel emotionally from the, uh, the narrative that I generate and then what I presume is shared or mutually true for you as well. And almost all of those schools of thought, they overlap, they have nuances and distinctions, but I mean, almost sacrosanct among them is the idea that <clears throat> no one can presume to tell me what my interior experience is, right? That was sort of rule one. And in this realm of um, white fragility and, and lots of other working concepts like that, um, it feels like that's completely broken down. And, and, and it's broken down on the side of the conversation that in the past, and even up until quite recently, would have been the champions of that very perspective. I don't know that where what I'm thinking is a, the right place to go with it, but the thought that comes up is I think it's generally regarded across cultures that there are different right modes of being in peacetime and wartime. Mm. And in peacetime, there are kind of rules of civil society and civic engagement that includes things like presumption of innocence and due process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But in wartime, if somebody pops up, you don't like presume innocence and you know, do a proper trial and et cetera, you might just shoot first because it's an existential situation to do. Mm -hmm. And um, mm -hmm. so even though there are still rules of engagement in war, they're different ones. 
I think a lot of people are not behaving civilly because they actually don't feel like we're in civil society. They feel like they're in war. And that's why the terms like culture war. Mm. Um, yeah, I and, think that's a, great, that's a great distinction. I like that. And so they aren't presuming innocence. They aren't giving the benefit of the doubt. They aren't doing due process. They're doing, let's attack this person in the court of public opinion without jurisprudence or due process. Let's go straight to a punishment, right? Like the, affecting how people perceive them at scale. Um, because we're in wartime and it feels like our side is so existentially threatened that we have to engage in that way. And I, I see that across the board. Yeah, and, and I think we saw some of the earliest with the early phases of the Me Too movement as well. And I think there were even some op-eds by some fairly prominent feminists saying, hey, look, if, if, this, if this ends up taking down a few good men, uh, so yep. be it, um, because it's been so long, this is so pent up and backed up that this now needs to be expressed as it needs to be. Uh, versus within the confines of something else. And I think there's something parallel even with some of the Black Lives Matter critique of Martin Luther King's methodology, where they're saying, hey, actually, um, King was potentially um, giving away too much rage to show up within the model, the sort of you know, mainstream white approved model of Christian charity and forgiveness. Yep. And in fact, there is something more, more central and more... Uh, viscerally alive in raw anger uh, right now. Um, in fact, um, Tony Schwartz, who you, you probably uh, know, who wrote The Out of the Deal famously with Trump and then kind of Mia culpa his way out of it, but also has a very interesting career in human development and transformation and other things uh, through, throughout his life. Um, he's actually close friends with uh, a mutual friend of ours, and they were in a conversation, I think perhaps last week or so, and and, and Tony was challenging um, this fellow to say, hey, there is no, you can't, you know, the, the old Howard Zinn thing of like, you can't be neutral on a moving train. Like to your point, like this is war. And seeking to understand the perspective of alt-right folks, seeking to understand the perspective of people continuing this administration, like that's no, we're no longer there. You have to pick sides. And, and even, you know, and of course, whatever, whatever that, I forget, what, what is that, the law of, of men, how long does it take you to mention Nazis? Whatever that one is, we're about to mention it. Um, but that idea of, you know, it's no longer relevant to be seeking to understand where white supremacists are coming from. So, A, when did we end up on wartime footing? Like, if you could look, if you can look back through the tape, where do you put a pin in it? First, I'll say um, the, that I see that some people and movements have embraced wartime, and as a result, <clears throat> um, a lot of the psychological principles and uh, civility and democratic and republican, those kinds of principles are not the ones being engaged. Uh, I'm saying that I think that that's happening. I'm not saying I think it's good. I, I think it's a misassessment. Sure. Uh, and I think it's a misassessment even for the goals of the people who are doing it. Mm -hmm. um, and specifically, if you aren't factoring the way that the arms race will escalate, you aren't doing strategy. And so, you know, if, if we were playing chess, I wouldn't just think, what move do I want to make because I'm upset at the thing that you did, 
um, or like that just kind of feels like the appropriate thing right now, I'd be thinking about based on how I move, how do you move? And as good a chess player as I am is how many moves down the way am I considering? And so I think if people are not factoring counter response, if I'm successful with this, because I develop some new way to use social media, some new propaganda technique, some new way to use AI and Twitter bots and whatever to achieve my side of the info war, whatever, how will the other side find what was successful, reverse engineer it, who will be polarized by this, and then what happens next? Mm -hmm. um, and, and what other kinds of consequentiality are occurring? And so I, I see that like, even just good strategic warfare is mostly missing in people who th are, are racing the warfare idea. And so, for instance, and this is a, this is a very sensitive topic for like a dozen different reasons. If I think about the issue of addressing institutional racism in the US, all caveats being that I by no means have real expertise in this and I'm a white guy talking about it. Um, we have a country that was built on slavery and genocide. It's very hard to be able to, like when we talk about founding fathers in a positive way, it's like, it's a it's mixed, that's a very complex, tricky thing. I fully, fully acknowledge that that is the case and that there isn't institutional wealth being passed down because of those previous things in a way that creates total upper hand. And so I think the conversations around um, how we reconcile that and reparations are like reasonable and important conversation. That said, I think the way I hear about the racism, institutional racism argument on both the general kind of left and right don't match with the statistics as I understand them. Um, I was talking with uh, someone who uh, is at a university, has the largest data set of police violence data, and his assessment was that you can kind of cherry pick the data however you want, because you can say police shootings are twice for the black population, what the black population is, 13% of the total population, 25% of the shooting, but if you try and do it in a crime-adjusted way, it's actually more likely that cops kill a white person than a black person in a engagement and whatever. So that there are some signs of institutional racism that show up, but it's not as crystal clear as either side would have, that it's not a thing at all or it's like the central thing. So when I think about like, okay, current state, how do we deal with that? Then I zoom out and I say racism writ large. And I'm, it's very easy to say this is a boogeyman argument, but I think it's important. When I look at the Chinese treatment of the Uyghur, mm -hmm. where we're talking about sterilization at m the millions person scale and in internment camps and things like that. Uh, well, and, and Tibet has not just gone away because the Beastie Boys and Richard Gere stopped talking about it. Exactly. Yeah. And the anti-democratic crackdown in Hong Kong. And so I'm like, okay, sterilization and internment camps are more racist than what we're doing in the US today, like a whole different category of that. And when part of the major geopolitical context is a shift in who guides the 21st century, when the US Bretton Woods world is no longer clearly doing that, and the, the obvious contender is China, by the US staying at odds with itself, so it doesn't have the coordination capacity to really do geopolitics. Mm 
And China is not at odds with itself. She got rid of most of the people who disagreed with him in government and instituted Sesame Credit. And as a result, in the same way that they can build high-speed trains all around the world and we can't build infrastructure, they can also do geopolitical positioning. Are we staying so focused on the near enemy that we're actually ceding control of the world for a longer time, the worst enemy on the exact same topic? Is it actually like the most racist thing I could do over the next century? And yeah, well, and, and that's what, that's, that was my inquiry around the grief and the lashing out because, because it isn't strategic. That's the whole, that's the whole point. But once it's, once it's hijacked someone's system, it simply has to be dealt with constructively or destructively before any, before a next step can happen. And, and something that you, you hinted at a couple of interesting things there, Daniel, which was the idea of you're not doing strategy if you're just thinking kind of one move ahead and you're not thinking of the counters and the counters to those counters. And that sort of brings to mind Brett Weinstein's arguments about evolutionary biological encoding for, for tribal ethnocentrism and be careful when you play identity cards because they do go deep and that's how you end up going down the road towards genocide. And that's not to say the Jordan Peterson, you know, any multicultural effort anywhere is a slippery slope to Stalinism. It's just saying, hey, you know, tr you know humanism is optional and tribalism is destiny. Um, yeah. Connor Friederdorf at The Atlantic a few years ago uh, wrote what I thought was a really interesting piece where he was talking about, it's a little bit, it was a little bit like uh, Gladwell's piece in Outliers where he talked about honor cultures, like the goat herders in Sicily and the Scots-Irish and that kind of thing. We're talking about sort of like an eye for an eye and like you, you've dishonored me, but I think he teased apart honor cultures that work that way. You know, you, you wrong me and it's, a, and it's now my duty to, you know, to right that wrong for my family, for my name. And then there were dignity cultures and dignity cultures didn't do that. They, they, had, they had sort of set aside the eye for an eye uh, in exchange for an appeal to authority. Right. And, the, and that's higher ideals. That's those kind of things. And then he then he articulated this sort of the emergence of grievance culture and the grievance culture is a sort of mutation of dignity culture. So it's still an appeal to an authority, but it's to, it's the cancel culture. It's the call out culture. It's, it's all of those things. And what I what came to mind as you were describing all that is when people are being reactive and when we're throwing switches that we don't necessarily know all the downstream repercussions of, are we being quite naive to your point about China, right? which is a, a, a meta and global version, which is we're still assuming that there's a in-charge benevolent authority figure, basically a paternal figure, who is going to come after we cry foul and blow the whistle versus, versus actually, as you said, we're in a wartime footing now and who strikes first has advantage. And so all the rules of the game are shifting around us and, and we may actually, and particularly, let's say, uh, the progressive side of the fence may be still operating under the idea that there are still arbiters of authority that respond to appeal and grievance. What is your sense of that? I think the important thing is there are a lot of people who think they're doing strategy, but they're not doing the right strategy for the moment. And kind of the history of warfare is someone who was the dominant force who was doing the right doctrine getting beaten by somebody who'd come up with a new doctrine that was more fit to a changed environment that was napoleon mm -hmm. with the prussians or whatever and the people who were doing the thing that had been true who hadn't acknowledged that it wasn't true anymore completely lost it but they thought they were doing strategy 
which well, meant that, that was weren't. the 2016 Republican debates, <laughs> right? Exactly. Completely. And so if I look at the left in that way right now, I'd say all the attacks on Trump mostly made his support base coalesce stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, the Russia Gate, the Stormy Daniels, the all of those things. And but they just kept trying to throw more like that. And they didn't stop and do an analysis of like, we're neither getting more people signing up to be Democrats, nor are we weakening his support base. There's almost an anti-fragility effect happening that we're driving. Let's try a different strategy. It just kept trying the thing that was failing. So to me, that is like a death spiral. That's a flailing of something that has lost the intelligence to know how to be effective. And I would say, I mean, all the way up to uh, this election cycle and who was put in place um, on the side of the left, not the right strategic move at all. Um, well, 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 I mean, let's 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 just check that because it's obviously going to be up for a lot of folks as to what's happening this fall. Um, I get all the tired, dumpy, okay, boomer, time to move on, fresh blood, the whole bit, the centrist back pocket of industry and business, never had an honest or inspiring position of his own, like that critique, right? And, and feel free to add in any, any others. <laughs> um, and, but then there's also a sense of, is there not a functionality to him being blue collar, working class, Scranton PA centrist who has a diplomatic you know, several decades of relationships to go back and mend alliances and do those things. And is that, you know, is this idealistic? Not at all. Is it potentially stabilizing and potentially able to take some folks on the bubble and bring them over because it doesn't seem so entirely other as the boogie woman of AOC or Bernie might? I think that's the argument. (laughs) <laughs> I think that's clearly an argument. And I think the idea that we don't want change that is so rapid that it might be totally wrong. So let's actually reinstitute things that are more like a kind of more stable phase of establishment. It, mm-hmm. There's both like a good rationale for why that could be true. And there's also the vested interest rationale mm-hmm. um, and how much it's each of those uh, interesting question. Mm-hmm. Um I, it's a very tempting rabbit hole to get down what I think has happened with the elections and the primaries and whatever, but I actually think it's maybe not the most interesting place right now. Something I wanted to say is with regard to not doing, like not considering parts of strategy effectively to go to the other side and go to the far right and accelerationism. I think there's the same mistake being made and it's not exactly the same. It's a different one, but the like, uh, it's not if there will be a civil war, it's when and we're ready, that whole kind of um, meme complex. Mm-hmm. Uh, and <clears throat> we're more prepared for it than they are. So the sooner it happens, the better for us. So let's accelerate that thing happening and move on. So I think accelerationism can make sense from the point of view of certain things we could study in military history in the past that are actually the wrong context. Where that military history that's being applied is not the world we live in. Um, I think that, like, just a few parts of how I see that is the U.S. hasn't 
been in a symmetric war in the lives of anybody alive. We've we haven't had bombs hitting our soil and actually had our kind of citizenry at existential risk. And we have mostly made sure that we could bring the war somewhere else into developing nations. Yeah. And so I think that nobody actually has an embodied felt sense of what war is actually like, like symmetric war is mm -hmm. like. So there's a lot of kind of false ideas of it that are not grounded in real experience. Um, yeah, that's and dude, that, that, that's so worthwhile unpacking for a sec, right? Because obviously the sort of the Pax Americana, the 50 years after World War II, you know, Europe's in ruins, <laughs> Japan's is bombed to smithereens, China's still, you know, limp, limping along and then straight into their own revolutions. Um, everybody, everywhere is hurting but America. And, and that sense of, um, and then even, even something like Vietnam, right? I mean, it did come home in the sense of Cronkite on the nightly news and the draft. So, you know, and, and something I think that most, I, you just don't hear about a lot, but I think that the, the private contracting of the Afghan and Iraqi wars and pretty much everything else that's happened since then with, what is the, I don't know, you probably know the ratio better than I do, but it might be like four to one private contractors to uh, actually service people. And, you know, the fact that that in itself not only has a massive economic cost because the government is often training people with inside the military, they quickly get out as soon as they can and then, the, and then they bill back triple to the government for the very training the government gave them. Um, but there's also the obviation of a draft. So American citizens never had to wrestle with, is this a just war, is this my war, is this our war? Right. Yeah, I mean, the movement from uh, war only by necessity that is kind of patriotically fought versus mercenary dynamics mm -hmm. is very, very different set of um, motivations. I, I think there's a bunch of things to get into there in terms of like privatization of military contracting, military industrial complex being the one thing of all things Eisenhower could have said leaving government that in his last speech he wanted to make the whole thing about that he thought was the biggest risk to the country mm -hmm. as the great military general that he was and president i if everyone hasn't watched that speech eisenhower's farewell speech it's worth going back to watch of where he thought that it was the u.s had almost been mm -hmm. completely strangled mm -hmm. out of sovereignty at that time mm -hmm. um, and that was before even the private militia side that was just the contracting right but there is in a supply and demand equation so it's not just that there's authentic demand and then we create s supply. It's that supply manufactures artificial demand. And that is actually one of the main things, manufactured demand that broke the market. Me meaning sort of idle hands are the devil's work. And if you put AR-15s in those idle hands, you have militias? I mean, if I'm selling something and I'm making a lot of money selling that, I want more people to want it even if they don't already. I want to figure out how to manufacture demand in... Uh, in their mind. So if I'm how to drive, how to make a new product that nobody ever wanted that won't make them happier, but drive FOMO that they aren't cool and they're missing out if they don't get it or whatever it is, right? Like oh, yeah. marketing came about. My, 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 my favorite example of that is Listerine, which was designed as, a, as an antiseptic in the Civil War for surgery. And then they had to go in and invent chronic halitosis as a category to then pitch it for something else entirely. So I think the supply side manipulation, manufactured demand is like one of the most critical things that made market theory kind of not real anymore. But of all the places where that's fucked up, military manufacturing is the worst one. 
And you just ask the question of like, if the military industrial complex is the largest or maybe one of, depending upon how you divide it, largest blocks of the global economy and the entire global economy would fail if it wasn't there. And so we've built a world economic system that around managing war that requires the ongoing management of war at that scale. Can you have lasting peace and a very profitable for-profit military industrial complex at the same time? And you see it as like there's some perverse incentives there that we would be better to not have. <laughs> well, yeah, okay, so, so I often think about that, whether it's accelerationists, well, really, I mean, I think accelerationists of any stripe. So it can be blockchain techno-utopians, it can be seasteaders, it can be anybody who's saying this system is so corrupt or broken that we are trying to drive it off the cliff because then, yay, you know, then, then we get our turn. And it, and it always just seems um, hopelessly naive unless they've factored in who controls the banks and the tanks. You know, and you look at the collapse of Yugoslavia, and you look at you know like Belosevic, and you know, like, you, like who gets the leftover weaponry of the empire generally gets to it has a pretty good spot on the new board, and who's controlling yep. means of currency and exchange does too, and and I'm just blown away by the conspicuous absence of that in most people's utopian wargaming. Well, I mean, I think you mentioned crypto. That was such an obvious one during the crypto bubble. Like, we're going to make some effective cryptocurrency that'll become the new reserve currency and obsolete the um, uh, central banks, and as a result, be able to uh, completely change the nature of empire. And and the conversation around like, okay, so so now you control the country. Who 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 just voluntarily gives the nukes up because you tried to make some interesting in banking? So what do the dudes who control the nukes do? Um, that's a very important question. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm the, the Whiskey Rebellion, right? Right after the American Revolution is always a great test case to me because it's, you know, it's all those Appalachian farmers and they were living, it was the Scots-Irish who had fought in the war. They went back home. They grew their corn. They wanted to turn it into sour mash and into whiskey, value-added goods, much more compact and easier to transport back over the hills down to the markets of Virginia and D.C. And, but they didn't have to pay taxes on all the corn and then George Washington rides up with the standing Continental Army and is like, I know all you. You fought with me at Valley Forge. I will hang you in the morning if you don't pay your taxes. And that render unto Caesar element is so pronounced. Uh, it, and, it, and again, if, like you said, it, you, you, if you don't factor in state-sanctioned force and who gets to continue on with that big stick, I don't think any... any thoughts of radically transformative change pencil out. And I think when people talk about civil war in the US in a um, like at all positive light, the, the idea of an actual civil war, meaning that the military is turned against itself, right? Now the army and the air force are at war with each other, something like that, or the military of blue states versus red states. There is no winning of that war. That is a, that's a war that just can't happen. Um, both red states and blue states have enough nukes to kill the world a heap, heap of times over and are just, you know, catastrophically devastating. So I, I don't, I don't see pretty much hardly any scenarios where that's, that happens. I don't see any scenarios where it'd be a good thing, but I don't see anywhere it happens. Cause I think fortunately, uh, the generals are better at military theory than that. Um, now. So civil war at that scale, I don't see. Civil conflict increasing, 
of the groups with AR-15s uh, and ar arson capabilities and whatever increasing. That's already happening. Mm -hmm. And that could increase quite a lot. Well, and, and as is, um, decentralized but coordinated um, militarized response of civil peacekeeping. So you are seeing armored vehicles, you are seeing SWAT, you know, extreme SWAT gear, you're seeing, uh, you know, the dis distribution of, you know, obviously everything from the pepper sprays to the rubber bullets to, you know, crowd control techniques that have generally been beyond the pale. And we just started this spring right out of the gates with all of them. It was like, holy shit, that did not take long to escalate. Right. And, and posse comitatus won't get in the way of shutting of the military figuring out ways to shut down the violence if they have to. Hmm. Um, so just, just, ex just explain that for folks. Posse comitatus, the rule that the U.S. military should not be turned on its own citizens or deployed on soil against citizens. That's where you end up making special branches called federal police or whatever it is that have the ability to deploy that. Um, but, and then, of course, it, when the accelerationists think about civil war, they, it's important to be asking the question, okay, so when we're at civil war, what is China doing? What is Russia doing? What is Iran doing? Uh, are they just like watching and not getting engaged at all? Are they going to pick one side? Are they pretty, maybe, might they have incentive to support both sides to just turn the enemy against itself? Um, now, if we say before the can the conventional war of bullets and the unconventional, the narrative and culture wars we're talking about, do they already have an incentive to support extremist groups, probably on both sides to be more extremist because it's, oh, yeah. it's a good idea to attack the guy with all the nukes head on. It's a much better idea if you read Sun Tzu or the 36 stratagems or any kind of book on Chinese strategy, but military strategy in general is just make the enemy divided. And so uh, when we look at all the like Chinese Twitter bots and Russian sock puppets and whatever uh, influencing social media and influencing online chat groups and the mimetic space, do I think that what people believe is already being radically manipulated in ways they don't know for, for foreign purposes in addition to domestic purposes, totally? Mm -hmm. And well, yeah. I mean, even even the even the 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 FBI debriefs on the Russian interference in 2016, right? I mean, I mean the the way in which they the, where exactly they were placing their chisels in the culture war and where they were tapping showed a greater psychographic awareness of the of the of the American mind than I think any pundit on mainstream American news had. You know, the idea of having. Muslim women, you know, po you know, fake sites of Muslim women for Hillary or something like, you know, like just just they were just mixing and matching um, the the flammable materials. Right. And and it was it, it's been crazy to see. And, and obviously in the in the last four years, it's only got far more intense. Well, and this is where it's important to understand, like, of course, narrative warfare has always been a thing and try to turn the enemy against themselves has always been a thing. But the tech, the exponentiation of information technology has made it a much easier and much more powerful thing. And I would not say that the defenses have been able to keep up with the nature of the offenses. Um, and so if we go back to, say, pre-internet, we go to the 
pre-ubiquity of internet, go to the 80s or 90s even, it's pretty hard for Russia or China or whatever to control what's on CNN very significantly. But it's not very hard to be able to get YouTubers to make content or to be able to influence a million content streams, you know, that are going to um, go through decentralized broadcasts. So that's one thing. But then the other thing is once you have the kind of social media algorithm optimizing for time on site that is going to, and you optimize for time on site by appealing to people's current bias and limbic hijacks. So the right gets more right, the left gets more left, the conspiratorial people get more conspiratorial, the pro-establishment get more intensively there. Everybody gets further away from each other, more certain and kind of more outraged. In that, and that's basically the AI attacking everybody without even intending to, because it's just optimizing time on site and it happens to do that by appealing to the lowest parts of our nature. Uh, in that environment where the lowest parts of our nature are being most appealed to, then just pushing people a little bit further in the direction they're already sliding becomes very easy. I don't have to oh, get yeah. people to stuff they don't believe. I just yeah. support them believing the trajectory they're already on. Yeah, I mean, I think there was some there was some Soviet propagandist who, who outlined that very clearly. So he's like, we don't ever try and make them believe the lie is the truth. We simply muddy the entire concept of truth so so, so thoroughly that they just they give up. Yeah. Looking. Okay. So this, this this is actually the culture thing that is so important to me. It's going to come back to this topic you're asking about perspective seeking versus passion. Mm -hmm. um, I think for the most part, almost everyone in the country has become an epistemic nihilist. <laughs> like they have given up on the idea that they can understand what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of their own authentic epistemology, for the yeah, most the, part, the technical term is shit or go blind. You know. Okay. Um, and so I think that the, the, when I find most of the people who have extremely impassioned views on any topic, they have not done the primary literature research. They don't even know the counter narrative points well, only straw man versions of them. Um, and yet they're totally impassioned about a thing because some authority that they, or tribe that they decided to agree with or defect to did. And so that's not epistemology, that's tribalism. Sure. And so I think trying to really figure out what is actually going on with China's agenda or what's actually going on with um, DC corruption or what's actually going on with anything. Like, of course, there's some people who will try to figure it out by going down a Pizzagate rabbit hole, but then they'll accept a narrative without breaking the narrative into individual propositions and trying to verify and falsify each proposition individually, as well as for a counter narrative, which means it's really not epistemology. It's the illusion of epistemology hijacked into patternicity and kind of dopamine hijacks and groupthink. Yeah, I, I think I saw, I saw a meme saying, if, if you say you, you did your research to wake up, you didn't. You've just been targeted by a weaponized AI, AI algorithm. Yeah. Yeah, so if I want to do epistemology, I've got to say, well, what are the various narratives on this thing? Do I understand them well? Can I break the narrative into individual propositions? And then how, what do I use to falsify or verify each one? What is the right epistemic basis for confidence? Where should I have a very low confidence margin? Am I emotionally disposed to want more confidence than I have? Well, I mean, right? basically, what, I mean, if, if, you do, if you do the regression on everything you're suggesting, you're basically saying we all need classical educations in an exponential age. We need logic, rhetoric, hermeneutics. Right. Definitely. And none of us are going to be getting that anytime soon. Um, so so what so and, and in an age that's super decentralized in its sense making, 
and yet it's also incredibly flat and muddy. So we have massive breadth and very little depth. And there's an antinomian sentiment of like, like no one should tell me what to do. And yet higher ground is called for, almost essential. How do we reconcile that? How do we reconcile the great leveling tendencies and almost the know-nothing tendencies, the anti-intellectualism that is going on across the board and the decentralized, you know, you can, whatever we'll say, let's just call it decentralized crowdsource movements with the utter lack of quality and discernment. Because you, the natural thing would be, hey, either we all get rigorous classical educations that we didn't get, and probably don't know how to deliver it on mass at all, or we look to a hand, you know, people who do make better sense more often, but it feels like we've got an immune reaction against that very move right now. Okay, one thing I would say is the I don't need better sense making, I have good enough sense making, I need impassioned action, where that's definitely not true. Um, like, I would like people to acknowledge, I would like them to acknowledge the failures of their own movements more. Um, and the failures of the types of sense-making uh, and strategies. So, like, if we look at the sustainable development goals and how much progress they have not made, and then we look back to when they were called the Millennium Development Goals and we had to kind of rebrand them because they didn't succeed. And it's like, why are we not succeeding with these things? These seem like universally desirable things. Why are we kind of... Uh, and for climate change... If any proposal for how to address climate change that, that that some people really agree on is fervently opposed by huge percentages of humanity, can we make progress on anything in that environment? Um, so I, what I would say is that the but if, if it's fervently opposed because, say, the approach to solving climate change involves uh, taxes on whoever agrees to it. So if the US and Europe agree to it, it actually lowers their GDP per year. And as a result, if China doesn't agree to it and there's no adequate methods of enforcement, their increased GDP that goes into increased military and geopolitical positioning means that in trying to address climate change, we're ceding the control of the world. That's where you have to have better sense making to say, how do I think about climate change and geopolitics and economics together and come up with a solution for all that? Because they're interconnected enough that I can't pick my favorite topic that I'm going to benefit while externalizing harm somewhere else and not have a huge percentage of the population who doesn't want that harm externalized somewhere else focus on that thing and fight me. The people who I really disagree with don't just leave the planet and stop doing stuff. And whatever I do, counter responses happen. So how do we actually factor how do we get invested in increasing the sense-making of everybody and increasing the quality of conversation that we can do participatory governance together, which requires participatory mm -hmm. sense-making and conversation? Uh, I, so the, the first thing I'm saying is if you're not doing that, whatever you are trying to succeed with will fail. The, the In a world of this kind of complexity, not trying to get asymmetric intel, those strategies will just all fail. I think that it didn't take that many people in kind of the European enlightenment to make a new thing that overturned the dark ages, right? Like if you think about Descartes and Newton and a handful of people like figuring out something that would make cannonballs hit their target better than the previous 
pendulum dowsing and whatever they did, the increased empirical effectiveness of it is what made it take off, but the increased actual sense-making about reality. And so here's, it's like, if my map is wrong, but I think it's right, I'm not going to do that well. I'm going to navigate wrongly if my map doesn't correspond to reality well enough. So I really want a super accurate map, which means I want to know where my map is not accurate. Mm-hmm. So that but I there's, actually, have... there's actually something in, in uh, expeditionary, like mountaineering, there's a, there's a phrase for that called bending the map. Because what happens is when people are tired and lost and they really, really want that little nubby thing on the map to be that rock right there, which means they get to go to sleep and eat. And yeah, bending the map is, is a known cognitive distortion under stress. And winds people up in bad positions. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and in fact, almost always, the place where you bent the map is the place it goes from a, a casual accident to a fatal accident. Right. It's irrecoverable. Okay, then we're, we have a perfect analogy here. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, so, so called classic education, I'm going to call capacity to read a map and navigate a map. Yeah, root finding. Root finding and navigation. And, and so, so let's, something, that, something just kind of popped into my head as you were describing the algorithmic drive to the extreme. And the fact that it was it was almost like a like an like a you know a semi-automatic, uh, yeah, just algorithmically driven fracturing, and and as you were describing that, I thought of you know the establishment, right? It's the, it, the basically the same way that never Trumpers and and you know the Bill Crystals, you know of the of the world, the kind of the kind of long-standing conservative arm, pro-business, libertarian, free markets, that kind of, they've just been roughly elbowed to the side. And I'm really staggered that they've actually haven't had more heft to do something about it. And then the same critique on the left, right? If, you know, the people who have been concerned that Obama got a 400K speaking fee from Goldman Sachs and Hillary spoke there and that Joe Biden is in the pocket of industry and all those kind of things. How, where is that monolith? I mean, in some respects, if you took the Enlightenment and you followed that thread, these were the folks that won and expanded their winnings and consolidated it. And now they feel like they're left in the middle as the conversation has just gone much further afield than any of their business as usual agendas would, would actually think is ideal or even acceptable. Where are they in this mix right now? Is this an accident? How, how have we disintermediated the man? Or have we not? There's, there's quite a few parts to this that come to mind. Um, so the the creative disruption cycle mm-hmm. that has the startup that beats the big juggernaut because it's smaller and more agile and can make faster moves, get bigger and bigger until eventually it's a big juggernaut that is also bureaucratic and ossified and slow moving. So a new startup um, ends up beating and displacing it. Uh, whether it's a startup or an empire, that story, I think there's definitely something to if you look at 2016 as Trump and Bernie both as insurgents mm-hmm. and the, 
on an establishment and Trump got over the hurdle, Bernie didn't, but there was a movement to insurgency relative to establishment because the establishment um, had went through a institutional decay cycle. And specifically, like we're talking about where there was so much wealth, so there was also so much regulatory capture and breakdown in the authentic integrity of the um, liberal democracy system and no real war or real difficulty uh, in that way. Like, I think there's a bunch of things that led to pretty significant institutional decay. That's one of the factors. Mm -hmm. uh, the other one takes us a little bit more into the people, but does that start to address the question you're asking? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm just, you know, I'm just baffled and fascinated that somewhere between like, you know, the UN and Davos and the Koch brothers, right? Which is a wide spectrum, but nonetheless, the folks who had been playing the back and forth tennis game of the last half century, none of them need, seem to be particularly expressed in either of the most dynamic and volatile movements on both sides of the spectrum right now. And in some respects, you know, I guess my, my question, especially back to that algorithmically driven and even, you know, state actor exacerbated fracturing appears to be happening beyond their direct control or influence. Or am I missing something? Whenever you have an, an insurgency and in an establishment, it'll have new economic forces behind it that were not at the top of the previous stack and couldn't have been, but who wanted to, so they ride an insurgency. Mm -hmm. So like when I look at the Fed and Treasury's relationship with BlackRock right now and how the COVID-related money has mostly gone through BlackRock rather than the Goldman and usual bankers that the 2008 one went through. I see that as a kind of, it, it's not that we've disintermediated the man, there's just competition for who's the man and all the way at the top. There's financial warfare you know, at the top. I see that the new tech money made a lot of new money that was not part of the old Atlantic council kind of game, Atlanticist game. And so then you do start getting like not, not just a somewhat stable hegemonic system, you start to get a destabilized system because there's a lot of destabilizing forces, which means more competition in, uh, at the top. I think, I think actually thinking in the lens of class warfare relative to race warfare, gender warfare, and left-right warfare is one of the important lenses. And you were mentioning the example of like, uh, in the very beginning where people were so upset in some some TV show you were watching where they, uh, they had to focus on something, but it kind of didn't matter what it was. It was the crown and the death of King George, yeah. yeah. So, you know, if you think of, uh, you sounded like Gerard right then, um, was what I was thinking, because, you know, the, the Girardian conflict idea is that the conflict energy is just going to build in the system mm -hmm. as an actual result of people just wanting what each other have uh, until it finds a scapegoat and the scapegoat doesn't really matter. It's just a release of embodied tension. It only matters that it kind of works and the tension gets released on it. Mm -hmm. um, but if I think about it from the perspective of like, since COVID, the like a huge percentage of all small businesses shut down, massive unemployment, um, evictions, uh, breakdown in the real productive economic base and employment, but then the market rebounded and 
a handful of billionaires doubled their wealth in like almost no period of time. And so you have a decoupling of the economy and the market and a much more radical decoupling in terms of economic inequality. The people who are up here are doing pretty well kind of in the chaos no matter what happens. Mm -hmm. Like independent of their political agenda. They're just doing pretty well because they're isolated from the whole thing by the mm -hmm. increased capacity they have to navigate financialized markets. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, it is beneficial for anyone there to have the conflict energy never focused on them. And so left-right conflict is awesome. It's kind of like the prison guards keeping the prison gangs fighting with each other so they don't fight the prison guards. <laughs> um, and I think racial content, conflict is awesome. And I think gender conflict is awesome. I think all of those conflicts that kind of keep people divided, it's not only that that would be awesome from a Chinese or a Russian perspective. Wait, we, we, want to re, we want to rewind that and give you the opportunity to do air quotes on, on those, those statements. But yes, I totally, was totally following you. Just don't want somebody to snip that one and, you know, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. So, um, but I... I think in the same way that the people divided against themselves is better for foreign forces, it's also better for anyone who is doing asymmetrically better than everyone else in that system. Yeah. Well, well so, so that actually, that, come, that brings up an idea, and I do not disagree with you on that, that particular assessment, but it kind of hints at this question of game theory, right? And, 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 and one of the critiques that I've just sort of have heard around, you know, the existential risk community, uh, the intellectual dark web, a number of folks, you know, th that we know and, and, and share conversations with is the idea that, you know, the same way that like homo economicus, right? The idea that there was a rational economic agent and he behaved accordingly and it was cost benefit analysis all day long. And then along came you know, Dubner and Levitz and Freakonomics and Richard Thaler and this whole idea of like people are quirky and they do random stuff against their own interests sometimes and behavioral economics was born. There are times when it feels to me that like game theory is running a model of sort of like, you know, um, Homo Machiavellius, you know, the, the cold-blooded rational calculator. And when you run game theory based on the Homo Machiavellius, you almost always end up in bleak, bleak outcomes. And yet somehow, and, and, and I mean, this is harder to say now with a straight face or at least with, you know, and, and, and believe it, but somehow humans manage to do the right thing sometimes and we also manage to model along. So is there the equivalent update to game theory that we've seen in the field of behavioral economics? Is there some muddle through factor? Is there some leaving space for grace is there, is there something else to add into game theory so it is not always so reductively nihilistic in its conclusions? Okay, this is such a good question. And the first place I go with it isn't going to address it all. So like stay, let's stay with this one until it's properly addressed. Um, if everyone had exceptional game theory insights... I think we would be better off because it doesn't always lead in a terribly dark direction. If you have a, if you understand game theory well enough to understand an iterated prisoner's dilemma, not just a single one, but we, we do that one prisoner's dilemma and then 
we're the other people aren't gone from the planet. They're still actors. They're going to do more shit. Did we just engender a bunch of enmity? In the iterated prisoner's dilemma, in the single prisoner's dilemma, I have the incentive to defect. In the iterated one, I have the incentive to not defect um, because of what you know happens longer term. If somebody understands that winning this near-term battle but engendering more enmity and then teaching them the weapons that won it, it just drives arms races, kills everybody, that like you just keep getting more and more dangerous wars that and including more fucked up info wars and et cetera, that you can't keep winning at a extraction, pollution, destruction, misinformation game on an exponential curve in a finite space. That thing self terminates. And that's the don't shit where you sleep. Right. And so if if people actually got the long term attractive basin better, there would be more motivation to actually figure out coordination games. And, you know, that's kind of what Schelling pioneered during uh, the Cold War and mutually assured destruction was, yes, we reserve the right to defect on the agreement, but the game theoretically were actually both better to agree than to defect on it, which was the mutually assured destruction thing. Mm -hmm. um, so even for our own rational self-interested purposes, we can, we can get that. Uh, so that, okay, that's the first thing I was going to say. There's another thing. Do you, should I go there? Or? Yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, I mean, the thing I'm most curious about is, is, is there, is there an update, you know, to game theory comparable to the, the behavioral econ update? Because <clears throat> through the Cold War, I mean, yeah, we got mutually assured destruction, but both Soviets and U.S. game theoried out the opposition and blew us up, you know, a hundred times. But somehow we're all, you know, on, on the maps, right? Um, and somehow we're still here. So what, what is that leaving space for grace? What is that, can we, what, what is the progression from Homo Machiavellius to something, something that is, is realistic, but also um, potentially leaves us a little bit more wiggle room for humanity? Okay, so just for what it um, is worth in terms of the, the Cold War example, I don't know the history in here perfectly, so what I'm going to say it's rough. Mm -hmm. So you had the kind of, there were a few nuclear theorists of how should, we should deal with that. Kahn and Schelling were particularly important. And Kahn was for an idea that said we should have anti-missile missiles, like really invest in that, and underground bunkers so that we could survive a tactical nuclear war. And Schelling was very strong. No, we should actually, nobody should have anti-missile missiles. We should have only offensive offensive so that tactical escalates the whole strategic so nobody does tactical. And um, he won that thing. We ended up going that direction, mutually assured de destruction was kind of the result. And because you couldn't limit the harm, nobody did it. Now, of course, there's other arguments of like when someone got the wrong message and the actual person defected on orders in the last moment or something that's something mm -hmm. other than um than the homo game theory but uh mm -hmm. but the game theory itself actually and i think that was the important thing when rightly understood led to don't escalate the arms race here um and so i think I, it's just important to understand it's not that's not even an update on game theory it's just that most people have not understood it adequately hmm. Um, because, yeah, understanding it adequately realizes it ends in a dystopic attractor 
if you keep doing short-term optimization. Hmm. Um, and so you have to figure out coordination things in an iterated situation. All right. So, so I got, I've got two, two final questions for you. Um, the first goes back to that, the passion and action question. And, and we will in invoke that Nazi clause one more time. But I was just reading Nancy Coyne's book from uh, Harvard Business School on, uh, it was on, it's on Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, Rachel Carson, uh, Shackleton, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And so we just zero in on Bonhoeffer, right? I mean, I think he was a Lutheran minister or something along that. He was a man of the cloth. And seeing what was happening in the 30s and even early 40s in Germany, watching that progression, his wheelhouse, right, his leverage, as far as activity, perspective, insight, wisdom, would have been to be preaching and then beseeching everyone to live a more Christ-like life. Right, hundred percent is wheelhouse, zone of expertise, the whole bit, and and potentially the highest leverage, most scalable thing he could do would be kingdom of heaven on earth. And at some point, he switched gears and said, "I need to take that little bastard out." And that question is looming increasingly large. It feels like, you know, the, the notions of silence is violence and you, you can't be neutral on a moving train. And these kinds of things are really starting to, to come up and they are being asked and sometimes they're being weaponized and all of us have to be holding this. But at what point, um, for, I mean, I'll even phrase it most specifically, what in 2020 would you actually take to the streets and march for? And what would it take you to do so? What trigger? I mean, just personally, as a, as a kid, my mom took me to uh, lots of rallies. Like as a young kid where everybody was handcuffing themselves to old growth trees so they wouldn't get cut down. Um, and things like that. And I, uh, that seemed like a, a great thing to do if it worked. It seemed like a, a totally reasonable kind of civil engagement. So it, it's not so much for me, like, what would I take to the streets for? It's because there's a lot of things that are important enough that if taken to the streets would make it better, I would do that. My question is, does it make it better? And this is now a strategic question. And this is where a lot of times I think people will have a truth, but it is a partial truth that is so partial it ends up actually being misguided. And um, so there's this question in ethics, you know, virtue ethics versus utilitarian ethics. Utilitarian ethics, I'll do the thing no matter what if it achieves the right outcome because the outcome is what matters for everybody. The virtue ethic is I'm going to do the right thing just in some intrinsic sense of rightness, no matter what. Mm -hmm. And they both fail. They both, there's, you know, reducto ad absurdium arguments on both, where uh, if the right thing is to tell the truth, then do you say, yes, there's Jews in the house when the Nazis come by? No, that's nonsense. In that moment, I want to be more utilitarian and say it's a right to lie in this moment. Um, 
So one has to kind of think about the relationship of virtue ethics and utilitarian ethics. Is what I'm doing in integrity with myself and the world as best I understand it? And is it leading to the things that are actually support the quality of life for everything I care about, which also ends up requiring it to support the quality of life for things that I'm not as focused on caring about, but that are interconnected. And so. I'd like to skip, just bring that to life quickly. Like, like what, what, what would be a dynamic where that was true? If my marching, I have to say, what results from the march? Like who is going to change their mind or their behavior in which ways? So if I'm marching in a way that brings an injustice to the minds of people in a way that actually sensitizes them to that injustice. So people who uh, didn't know about something and didn't seem to care about it now care. We've actually engendered authentic care. Great. That's actually a valuable thing. If I if I bring something to the street in a way where everyone who already agrees with me just now agrees more fervently, but everyone who disagrees also disagrees more fervently. And a lot of people who were in the middle and who didn't really have a stance one way or the other now disagree with me because the thing that I'm doing isn't appealing to them. It's scaring them or something else that might be actually damaging what I care about. Um, long run. I know. Okay, I mean, I hear you. I track all of that. And there's still some element of that's just a very clever way to stay on my couch. No, because you say I'm committed to figuring out effective solutions. I mean, Malcolm X talked about a lot of economic solutions, right? He wanted mm -hmm. to actually have the black nationalism idea was he wanted black police officers, black judges, but starting with black business owners who were going to be the economics that influence government. Um, and so there were like education and economic and the, and and civil engagement of increasing their own um, quality of uh, local communities. I, I think strategy of what's effective is hard. And I think in the presence of not knowing what's effective, it's easy to either take one of two dysfunctional approaches, which is do nothing or do something dumb, do something that is like strategically ineffective. But I think both of those are not okay. Like because neither of them will actually be effective towards what I care about. Love can't be impotent. So the way, what I was gonna say, this was one of the things I really realized at the protests as a kid was sometimes those guys who were handcuffing themselves to the tree would keep the tree from being cut down for a minute. But if the, if the econo if they never changed the economics of it, usually they failed. Eventually the thing failed and the guys ended up cutting the trees down. And what I saw was that the people who were willing to take action and really cared had very low strategic insight and tools of power. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. the people like the military industrial complex and whatever that had very high strategic tools of power had usually pretty narrow interests that were willing to externalize or directly cause harm elsewhere. And that was like the head heart divide at the level of the planet that seemed clearly existential to me. And it seemed that power was pretty decoupled with virtue, wisdom, and goodness other than kind of the fake signaling of those things for the game of power and that that was existential, that those things had to be recoupled. And so I kind of would think about that as like the will center, the, the heart center, the mind center, which is the will of saying, I'm actually committed to being effective and I'm committed to learning how to be effective, which means I'm committed to studying every failure I have and saying exactly strategically why and studying the, like the, now the study is here. The will is the commitments to not become ineffective or disempowered. And the heart center is the 
what is actually sacred to me that I'm in service to. And I think the key thing here is recognizing life is sacred. Whatever part of life I'm focused on is connected to the rest of life. And if I'm not holding the whole thing, I'm probably driving an arms race where the thing that I'm okay causing harm to will end up harming the thing that I care about. And so how we get clear strategy, devotion and will aligned, like to me, that's a minimum requisite for people to be effective. And then that in the individual and then the groups of people aligning who are all in that way for collective capacity. Yeah, I mean, it feels to me like the a potential synthesis of the game theoretic dynamics, as well as utilitarian and virtuous ethics is, you know, effectively soul force, you know, it's what Gandhi called Satyagraha, and that idea of being lived by love, you know, that sense of because can I run all the traps? Yes, I can. Can I decide which interest I'm running with, with, with which hat, with which lens at each specific instance or juncture? Yes, I can. You know, or there is a surrender to the rightness of those three things that you just described. Mm-hmm. And then letting us be lived from there. And, and, I, and I, that's, what, that's the one I'm honestly like, that's my last card in the deck at this point is, is us somehow collectively finding our way to that Um, and I've got half an idea here and I don't know maybe you can complete the other half but as you were describing the effectively when would I take to the streets when would I march and be counted as one of a throng right one of a number and I've, I've lost all my leverage I've lost all my individuality I've lost all my unique contributions I'm marching to be whether or not there's an outcome it's sort of it's sort of like Never mind the utility. I mean, yes, you're hoping for utility, but it is something that I can't not do. I, is there something that's the reverse of leave no trace ethics, uh, which if people have been to Burning Man, they're familiar with that. If you've spent any time in wilderness areas or in National Forest Service land, there's, a, there's, a, there's principles on leave no trace. And that's based my actions as an individual in this seemingly infinite wilderness I could kind of do anything. I could walk anywhere. I could leave. I could bury my teepee, you know, my toilet paper under a rock. And what difference would it make? I could throw an apple core. But leave no trace is saying you, we commit to governing our actions based on the aggregate impact of thousands of us, of tens of thousands of us. And if one of us did that thing and then 10,000 of us also did that thing, then there would be irreparable harm. So can you get that through the looking glass? and back out into global concern. So is there a way for us to have an ethic of what ought I do based on the amplified model of what we all must do or can never do? What would be the inversion of LNT for an ethic of care and concern? Um. It's interesting. I mean, that's kind of Sartre's categorical imperative, right? Um, which is a, which is a, another one of those valuable ethical frames that is valuable, but also has failure cases. Um, when you, you mentioned Gandhi and the Satyagraha movement, Gandhi was obviously not just doing himself something that if everyone else did it would lead somewhere. He was, working very strategically to ensure that that happened 
and learning from the things that failed to continue to be more uh, more actually effective, right? Both in integrity and effective. Um, so at the individual level, people realize factory farms are the horror that they are. Should they stop eating factory farm meat, even though that doesn't stop factory farms? But they're like, if everyone did this and I just won't be complicit, yes, they should do that. And is that sufficient? It, is, is that the full extent of what that individual can do to address that thing? No. Um, so I guess the like, how do I live in a way that is aligned with maximum integrity myself is an individualistic question. But then how do I also have increasing capacity to influence others to do that? I, I, I guess I wanted to be both of those questions together. Yeah. Well then, so, so then my, my, my final question, I mean, it sort of seems like from leave no trace to like make a mock, you know, like, like let us, let us show up. Um, in this instance, really not just trying to live rightly, but, but to, to figure it out together. So, so you I mentioned, think, okay. The, I think it's, it's an, there's a very dangerous ego trap that people should just watch out for. Mm -hmm. Um, wanting to be seen as on the right side of history, wanting to be seen as I did the right thing here is a very easy way if like our susceptibility to that or like ethical susceptibility to that is a way that we can be captured hmm. by some telling us this is the right side of history and this whole group of people will judge you as wrong otherwise. So I actually take my own desire for group belonging, my, my desire for group belonging and my desire for um, significance hijacks me into something that I haven't necessarily understood well enough. Is that the right thing for me to be doing? Well, that seems, that seems like, to me, it's a pattern interrupt for sure. What side of history do I want to be on? And, and you know, subtext and which way does it seem like it's breaking? Um, but it could go either way. I mean, it feels like what it, what it can also do is decouple someone from short-term game-theoretic self-interest. So they're like, oh, shit, like this one's going down in the history books. I actually need to make the choice that I will be, you know, I, that I can look my grandchildren in the eye on. But then also, yep. as you just described, it, precisely because it's a pattern interrupt and I'm now in flux between meaning making anchors, I can also be swayed into, yeah. a, into a group think decision on which side is actually the right side. Yeah. I think the thing that you were saying earlier that I want to come back to is you were like, okay, so are you saying everybody needs better quality education to be able to understand <clears throat> Uh, an education in the Latin sense of the development of the capacity of the individual, not just cognitive education, but also their own ability to increase their own will and discipline so that they can continue to be more effective and their own ability to understand and work with their own emotions, right? Like when, when I say education, I mean it or cultural enlightenment in that widest sense of the development of humans that have the capacities, cognitive, emotional, social, uh, volitional to be able to be in service to that which they would most care about and that are most worthy of caring about because they have been deeply introspective and reflective. Uh, I see no solutions that don't rest on that. Hmm. I see no solutions that don't rest on the increasing comprehensive development cognitively, emotionally, interpersonally, 
uh, volitionally of every person and then their increased capacity to work together well with each other and their commitment to do so, recognizing that if you don't, those people don't leave the world. They go somewhere else and take a different position and do stuff. Uh, any solution that isn't based on that, I, I bet against. Mm. Well, I mean, I think we had a pretty good run at it. I mean, back to the Pax Americana, right? I mean, that was about as good a lie of the ball as we possibly could have had. Right in the middle of the fairway, you know, all we had to do was just keep whacking it. And now we're in the sand trap, you know, around the corner with a thunderstorm coming. So, so to go back to your, your hat tip to Eisenhower and his farewell address, um, if, if, he was, if, if he had one thing to say and he cautioned against the military industrial complex, what is the one thing that you would advise us all to keep our eye on, on the road ahead? What is the right basis for certainty and trust? What is the right process to go through to have adequate certainty to uh, act? acknowledging the consequentiality of inaction as well. And what is the right basis for trust of an authority of an in-group of your own process? Recognizing that everything is being weaponized. The virtues can all, it, every physical tool can be turned into a weapon. I can build a house with a hammer, or I can hit somebody in the head with it, right? Because the tool is just an extension of capacity. Every cognitive tool and every religious tool, like anything that affects and moves humans can be turned into a weapon, and they all are right now. So I, that doesn't mean that every time something looks like a virtue, it's actually a weapon, but it also doesn't mean it's a virtue. It means I don't know. <laughs> there are real virtues and there's virtue signaling, and I have to, the only way to know is to use my discernment, right? To really be present, to use my discernment, to not have a default kind of way of being. And my own in-group, is sometimes using their virtue as weapons and sometimes they don't even know it. And sometimes it's authentic virtue. Sometimes it's an authentic virtue, but missing so much, it'll still be the wrong choice because there's other kind of virtues or clarity missing. So it's kind of like, how do I take increasing responsibility for being effective towards what I care about factoring everything? <laughs> Just that. <laughs> Just that. That's, that's what I would leave people with. How do I take increasing responsibility to be effective towards what I most care about factoring everything progressively better beautiful beautiful well daniel thank you thank you for coming on homegrown humans and thank you for your work in the world trying to keep I this whole thing on the tracks i want to hear you your want... answer to the eisenhower question to the eisenhower question fuck beware the military industrial complex oh. i mean it you know it's fun i mean it's going to seem super old school but it's it's going to be beware false messiahs and false idols yeah the one you said and the one i said actually map to each other quite nicely <laughs> yeah yeah all right buddy well listen man thank you for making time on a weekend um yeah when you say that it just it, it brought up, so another biblical quote for, we could pick any religion that had some wisdom in it and use them, but the quote in Ecclesiastes of time to kill and a time to heal and a time to sow and a time to reap and a time to every purpose under heaven, if there's a time for everything. So basically 
there was a thou shall not kill. Now it's saying there's a time to kill, right? So it's a, it's a deeper, more nuanced teaching saying that everything is medicine sometimes, everything is poison sometimes. Well, then how do I know what the fucking right thing is in a particular moment? Well, it's like presence, earnestness, clarity, discernment is to have us to be able to sense beyond any specific formula what is actually the right thing. And that's the not having a false idol because the model of this is the right thing to do has actually decoupled me from sensing the moment. And sometimes very different strategies and sometimes virtue ethics and sometimes utilitarian ethics, sometimes uh, taking to the streets and sometimes an economic strategy or a diplomatic strategy or an educational strategy. And uh, so when, if I think about your no false idols and I say, okay, so what is the real idol is reality itself. And I can never understand it fully. So how do I be in direct relationship with reality? Well, it's any idea that is always the right thing to do is a false idol. So how do I have more presence in my connection with reality continuously, authentically, that's informing right action in the moment? That's kind of how I relate the one that you said and the one I said of how do I take more responsibility for what I care about. Yeah, nice. All right, brother. That was awesome. This episode of Collective Insights was hosted by Jamie Wheel and produced by Jacqueline Loera. This podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement, and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.